Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the future of healthcare reform. And Richard, as you and I are taping this here in the final days of June, we've just had the Senate pull its vote on health care reform, the House, of course, having already passed theirs. Uh, it's clear that on the Senate side they don't have the votes for this yet. And I want you to just start by walking us through where we are right now. And I'm going to start with something that you wrote recently in The Hill where you were advising congressional Republicans to develop what you called a modest sense of humility. And there you wrote, quoting you, it is a lot harder to dismantle a bad system than it is to put – new one in place. What do you mean by that? Well, the Obamacare system from start to bottom was, I think, a series of horrendous mistakes. Um, I'm just going to concentrate for the moment on the uh, individual mandate and the employer mandate, putting to one side the expansion of Medicaid, Medicare, which has its own difficulties. And what they did is they thought they were devising a competitive system through the exchanges, but it was really a misnomer. An exchange is something where the only requirements that you have to meet are those which make sure that you're capable of completing any transaction action with respect to the relevant subject matter that you start. And the exchanges here essentially have a very different view. If you want to get on this exchange, well, you have to agree to rate regulation. You want to get on this particular kind of exchange, you have to agree to a minimum essential benefits package. You want to get on this kind of an exchange, what you have to do is to take all comers in random order. If you want to get on this kind of exchange and you're a large company, you have to keep your administrative expenses under 15% of the total. And it just goes on and on. Well, all of these restrictions actually hurt. And so what happens is when you put these things together, you discover that the exchanges really can't breathe. Uh, the administrative costs are so high, the companies now realize that if they get into this thing, they can't get out. And so what you see is company after company peeling away. Uh, there was an effort to give bedpan mutuals and special insurance companies. They had too small a base and they couldn't survive. The greatest irony, I think, is the one about the uh, administrative expenses being kept under 15% because it means that these companies don't have enough money to advertise. If they can't advertise, it turns out that they can't get people into the particular system. If they can't get them into the system, they can't spread their fixed compliance costs, which are very high over a large number of users. And what you see is the whole thing imploding. So uh, this was a mistake from the beginning. You knew it uh, the day that it started. It was like watching the tides come in and you're tied down in a tsunami and you can't get out of the way. Now this thing is put into place. And what happens is some people think it's really quite terrific uh, because they're folks who have gamed the system in perfectly legitimate ways and they've bought on to programs that they get at very low cost with very high government subsidies, which they couldn't replicate in the, uh, in the open market. So they're going to be worse off if you take them out. Before you put something like uh, Obamacare exchanges into place, the beneficiaries are diffuse. They're not self-identified. Now they are. And not only they identify, but they have organizational groups behind them. So one of the reasons why the Obamacare exchanges lose so much money is if you, for example, are talking about children or young adults, it's not the random child or the random young adult who joins on. Uh, there are various kinds of groups, for example, that say, well, if you've got diabetes, this is the way in which you get on, and these are the carriers to which you apply. Uh, so that you get huge selection um, for getting into the program by people who have high expected yields from 
plummet and low premiums, and everybody else on the other side wants to run out. Uh, so the people who are net winners just don't want this thing to disappear. The docs who get guaranteed payment out of this thing, they don't want it to disappear. The hospitals who kind of like the cozy relationship, they don't want it to disappear. And so what you do is you have a system which, at least on the exchange side, doesn't insure many more people than it did before. But whereas the private system circa 2008 generated large profits for companies and large taxes for the government, these programs all require extremely high subsidies for people who get subsidies don't want to do it. So you can't get rid of this. You could tell a similar story with respect to the expansion on the Medicaid program, resisted in some states because of the collateral cost, but not in others. And it generally is always the case. Start with something that's bad, put it in place, generate a few winners, even if they're net losses, getting it out is going to be a huge struggle. As a result, your conclusion in the piece that you wrote for The Hill is that it's a mistake for Republicans to try to get this done in one shot and that they need to think sort of more incrementally about distinct steps that they can take to start unraveling this. What are some of the steps that you would suggest? Well, I mentioned all of the defects that I thought were associated with these kinds of programs. And essentially what you try to do is to change um, the way in which the regulations and the requirements are put into place. A lot of this stuff is in fact done by um, regulation. So, you know, the definition of what kinds of benefits that you have to supply under the various packages uh, could be reversed by an administrative order. And what you do, first thing is that anything that it turns out that no private voluntary plan survives, you don't have the government provide. And then what you do is you look at those expenses which are essentially frequently incurred, but they're relatively small in amounts. People can put them on their own private budget so you take them out of this thing as well. And you literally go through line by line and trying to figure out the way in which you could reduce these things so as to give packages that are more congruent with what people want. You also allow a little bit of customization so men don't have to pay for maternity benefits and things of that particular sort. You put back in some exclusions for things that are very difficult to please. Psychiatric care is of course important, but trying to figure out what the illness is, when it ends, whether the doctors are accurate or not is much harder to do for mental injuries than it is for physical ones, which is why voluntary markets are very leery about um, insuring them. So you thin back the coverage in that particular way. You get rid of the restrictions on how much money they could spend on advertisement and administration relative to doctor stuff. And if you do enough of these things, what will happen is all of a sudden there's breathing room on the exchanges. People won't go off. The size of the government intervention is going to be much reduced as the Republicans want. If more people come into these programs and the companies start to make some money, that's going to put reduce the pressure on the Medicaid side of the particular system. And you can slowly unravel it. But, you know, it's interesting when you look at all of this, uh, the uh, critics of the president's plan, uh, well, not the president's plan, the Republican plan, they say you're harsh, you're hostile, you're miserable, you're inexcusable and so forth. They don't talk about what's wrong with the current system. They just hurl abuse at people. And the guys who are defending it, strangely enough, what they do is they make it appear as though it's a transfer system. We're paying too much to these guys. Let's get rid of that money and save it for taxpayers. Well, there were efficiency gains. That is, it's not just a question of having the same number of dollars sloshing around the economy. It turns out you'll get a better health care system if you can deregulate it. Many years ago, my colleague now at Georgetown, my friend David Hyman, and, wrote an, and I wrote an article you know, widely ignored about the virtues of choice and competition in the medical service. And we actually see it under Obamacare. What has been the huge improvement in this area? 
It's the unregulated portion of the market in which people who don't get themselves health insurance through these plans go into CityMD and Rx Medicine or whatever it is on many street quarters, and they just simply pay for services on an ad hoc basis. There's no insurance involved, and it turns out these guys are, in fact, exceptionally good at developing programs to say, lady, don't you come to us. You've got a serious problem. March yourself down to the emergency room or you might be dead. I mean, they're good at doing that kind of stuff. And that shows you the way in which you could get innovation if it turns out you just get rid of the shackles on this system. I don't think there's been a Republican statement which has actually talked about the affirmative benefits of innovation, imagination, competition, and choice in this particular injury. And there's been no help from the president. So as I look at this thing, you know, tears come into my eyes about how inept this whole campaign has been conducted to date. One of the deficiencies that you pointed out in your piece, which you haven't mentioned yet in our conversation, insurers at the moment, they have to get regulatory approval when they want to implement rate increases that go over 10 percent. Now, Richard, lawmakers have presumably done this because they just don't want prices to go too high for consumers. Why is that in your judgment a bad idea? Price, look, the first thing to understand is that when you start looking at something like price controls, don't begin the discussion with a statement, oh, medical care is so different, so special, and so unique that the ordinary rules of market behavior don't apply. This has been applied in virtually every market in which you care to imagine. So why do we have rent control? Everybody knows that housing is a unique market. Why do we have price supports in agriculture? Everybody knows that farming turns out to be a unique market. Um, why do we have minimum wage? laws, everybody understands that labor is a unique market. Then none of them are unique. And what happens is the moment you start having price controls, you create systematic shortages. Um, it turns out lots of people will flock to get these benefits, but there are very few people who provide them. So you've got a demand for 100 and you've got a supply of 40. 60 people are going to have to do without. And that's exactly what happens under these kinds of a programs. If what you do is you allow the rates to go up, and it turns out there's something that looks like a super competitive profit, guys will come off the sideline and they'll start bidding the prices down to a competitive level. So you can make medicine you know, competitive with respect to vast amounts of routine care. And if you're a little bit worried about what happens to somebody who's bleeding to death and walks into an emergency room, you could have a statute, which we already have on the books, like called Tala, for treating these emergency conditions um, and handle it in that particular way and still let the market work for 99.9% of the transaction. Uh, but there is absolutely no sentiment on the part of this. And it's not that the Republicans uh, um, are pushing this. They don't. They understand this when it comes to financial deregulation. They're pretty good on that stuff. They seem to get it more or less with respect to labor administration. But they don't seem to get it in this particular area. So they have been absolutely quiet in making an affirmative case for how you could expand the spy, improve innovation, and the rest of the stuff. It's the kind of bunker mentality that you so associate with the Soviet nomenclature has been taking over here. Uh, the Democrats are having a field day. You know, they won't change anything on the Medicaid side where the block grant system is used everywhere, like in Canada and so forth, and we don't want to use it here. So the whole thing at this particular point has been one of the most dispiriting 
learning exercise in public policy and aptitude uh, that one can see. And, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how to go with it. I'm not disagreeing with the Republicans where the long-term objective is. We're trying to unscramble an omelet that the Obama people put together. Um, I talked about this in a debate that I had at NYU in 2009 and kept harping on the adverse selection problems and the administrative complications. And everybody says, eh, we'll put it in place and get these things sorted out then. But it turns out they couldn't do it. We have a very bad situation, and the Republicans will end up owning it if it turns out they can't get something more modest through. And they have to essentially take the Democrats on, on the intellectual side of this debate, because where the Republicans are inept, the Democrats are intellectually hopeless. To the extent that Obamacare has critics on the left – uh, many of them are advocating going to a single-payer system. In fact, there have been state-level proposals along those lines in California and in New York. Vermont was going to do this a few years ago and then abandon it because they just couldn't make the numbers work. But the advocates, Richard, will tell you that it covers everybody and it's more efficient, they say, because you cut out the middleman and government takes care of the situation. Allow me to ask you this in a ridiculously neutral fashion. <laughs> Is that persuasive to you? you want, my friend. Is that persuasive to you, that, those arguments for single payer? No, no, I think it's really terrible. First of all, if you're going to look at the only kinds of universal health care systems that have a fighting chance of working, you've got to go to places mainly like Canada. And what they do, of course, is they use the block grant system. Uh, the federal government gives allocates funds to the provinces, which raises its own money. They put quotas on how much doctors and hospitals and organizations could spend during the course of the year, and they ration through that system. Is it perfect? No, because what happens when you start using block grants and rationing like that is the queuing becomes enormously long. We can't take you this year. You've got to wait 19 months before we'll see you about that shoulder. We'll only take people when they have near-fatal conditions. So somebody whose condition is eminently treatable in the first five weeks of a situation has to wait until he's really sick before he gets to see a doctor, and it's a complete waste. Many people, therefore, in places like Toronto, march over the border for care in places like Buffalo because it turns out to be access. I remember one story when somebody said, you know, it's easier for me to get an MRI for my cat than it is for my daughter uh, because that's an unregulated market and supply and demand start to clear. So that's one set of problems that you have. Uh, secondly, if the prices are low, the demands become extraordinary. And what they tried to do in Vermont is do this, and they realized that they were just overwhelmed. The only systems that had a prayer of working, like the Massachusetts plan, were heavily subsidized by the federal government. But you can't subsidize 50 states simultaneously, so you can't control for that. Then, of course, you've got another problem. Uh, the current system of Medicare and Medicaid, at least loosely, is based on the prices that are associated and generated by a private market. You get no price information if everything is going to be done by the government. How does it set prices for the millions upon millions of procedures that it has? Well, it could say we're going to charge $500 for an MRI. Well, you're going to do that in San Francisco, in Reno, in Hoboken, in some small town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you can't use these kinds of uniform price systems because, of course, the real estate and everything else is enormous. So you're going to have to have this huge kind of price-setting apparatus working in the void. Uh, it turns out that the way in which you're going to try to economize is raise taxes. That imposes deadweight losses on the rest of the economy. Then you're going to try to knock down the prices that you pay to doctors. And what will happen? 
happen is they will try to get out of this system and they'll specialize in sports medicine in places where they can get market wages instead of trying to take care of old people who have serious arthritic problems which need some kind of attention. Uh, socialism never worked for railroads. Socialism never worked for airlines, for steel mills and so forth. Healthcare is different. It's more complicated than these other markets. But the relative advantage of private markets that generate infra- information and provide for tax revenues relative to government markets which have no information and suck up human huge subsidies are just enormous. And nationalization of any system is simply bizarre. I have not met anybody who is in favor of this program who will tell you, after we put it in together, this is the way in which it's going to run. Oh, they said we get rid of the insurance men. You mentioned that. Well, uh, there's a reason why you have insurance companies there, Troy. One of the reasons is, well, it turns out you have to figure out whether somebody is or is not eligible, a thankless task. And if the doctors don't want to do it, the insurance companies have to decide whether or not this is done. Somebody has to collect information to figure out which procedures work well and which not. It's easier to do that at an insurance company level than it is to do it at a doctor level. And these guys know how to aggregate this kind of information and all the rest of this stuff. If you're trying to figure out how you get people into these programs and figure out what coverages you can and cannot give it, insurance companies can do all of that. Think of it this way. In a market system, we're willing to pay these people billions of dollars to do something. If it was completely worthless, uh, the private market would have cut out the middleman and you just have doctors and patients getting together. Now, that's also instructive because, as I mentioned to you before, uh, there are now many places, with, at least for basic care, in which the correct verdict is insurance companies are too much of a complication. Can't use the third party. So you get at the bottom end of the market, widely spread, but not just the bottom. Um, you know, these walk-in clinics, there's also a phenomenon known as concierge medicine where a doctor will say, I want you to pay me $1,500 a month or whatever it is, and I will take care of all your basic needs and refer you to specialists for different kinds of treatment. And that also gets you out of the insurance system. So one should always understand that insurance is not necessarily a good thing. It's sometimes a good thing. It's like any other kind of market. It creates complications by adding in third parties, but it creates advantages by creating organization, discipline, and knowledge that private parties don't have. The relative advantages, I'm not going to tell you in one case or another what it is, but I can assure you the moment you have the government in this road, it's going to be a lummox. It's going to take forever to figure out what to do, how to handle new treatments, which to include, how to subsidize them, what to do with FDA and drug prices and so forth. It will not, cannot, never has, never will work. And it's the sort of the illusion of the moment uh, that because we can identify failures in markets, that somehow or other when government programs replace them, there are no failures. The name of this particular game is Every system is imperfect. So don't tell me here's a flaw, therefore don't do this. That means you do nothing ever. It's the question of which set of flaws are larger and which ones are more easily correctable and more administrable. And the answer is private markets are fewer flaws because they have better incentives and they have a stronger action for self-correction than governments. And most of the failure that you see in the private markets today are because of these crazy systems of regulation which stop changes in treatment and changes in prices uh, based upon market conditions. Just to give you one number and then we'll stop because I'm running up too much of a head of esteem. Why is it that the number of people who were insured by employers in around 1980 was 60% and now it's 50%? It's because people are stupid.
No, what happened is you throw on government mandates to buy things that people don't want. And it turns out that if you put enough of them on, the package turns out to be a net negative. And so what you do is you wreck that market. Does it make a difference? Well, if you roughly assume we have 150 million employees and you're taking 10% of them out of the market, 15 million people are out of business because the policies they're willing to buy are no longer available because of the regulation that's put into place. These are not market failures. They're government failures all too often and certainly in the medical cases. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.